This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Hey, hey, this is Anjali. And her dad, Suresh. And this is our promo for the show. Do you enjoy Aunt Betty how she greets the show? Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. Sam gives me the news in a way I can use. Do you like our interviews with the folks you need to know? And he does it without making my head explode. Every Tuesday and Friday, we'll keep doing this work. But to do it, we need your support. If you like what you hear on the show today, give to your local station in a way that pays. It was a tough year. We're in this together. We're building a community, and our stations make us better. So if you really call yourself a member of the IBAM fam, do what you do and give what you can. When I say station, you say support. Station. Support. Station. Support. And Astro, what about your support? <laughs> to get started with your donation, go to donate.npr.org sam. That's donate.npr.org slash Sam. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. For this last hurrah of 2020, we're going to actually share an episode I did of another NPR show. Sam has a new voice on Fresh Air, but he's familiar to a lot of NPR listeners because he hosts the NPR show and podcast It's Been a Minute, and before that was one of the original hosts of the NPR Politics Podcast. Y'all, that is Terry Gross introducing me. I'm flattered, honored. I got to be on Fresh Air this year. I spoke with director and screenwriter Aaron Sorkin. We discussed his latest film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. And of course, we talked a bit about the social network and the West Wing. Anywho, I'm really excited to share this chat with you all. After the break, you'll hear it. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. At Planet Money, we are also grappling with what's going on in the world. We just don't know, and, and you're still going to have to decide. So we call up economists like Emily Oster. It's like we're fighting the pandemic by having a bake sale or something. <laughs> exactly. I mean, all due respect to bake sales. Exactly. <laughs> Listen and subscribe to Planet Money from NPR. For decades now, Aaron Sorkin has shaped the way we think about power. He wrote the film A Few Good Men, the NBC drama The West Wing, the Academy Award-winning movie The Social Network, all about Facebook. TV and movies that paint a very particular picture of what it means to wield power, whether you're a president or the head of a big tech company or a high-ranking Marine. Aaron Sorkin is back in 2020 with another study in power and the power of protests. Sorkin's new Netflix film is called The Trial of the Chicago 7. It tells the story of the infamous 1969 trial of some of the men who helped organize the anti-war and countercultural protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. These protests turned to riots in a year full of civil unrest, and they came to represent so many of the deep divides in the nation at that time. 
These men, the Chicago 7, they were charged by the U.S. government with crossing state lines with the intent of inciting a riot. Sorkin's film is a meditation on progressive politics and government overreach and the role of protest in civic life. It is also a classic courtroom drama. Here's a scene from the start of the film. It's got Bobby Seale, co-founder of the Black Panthers. He is one of the men on trial, and he's trying to represent himself because his lawyer is in the hospital. Seal is played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen. You'll also hear Frank Langella as the judge and Mark Rylance as the lawyer for the other defendants. I, Bobby G. Seal, have a motion pro se to defend myself. I'd like to invoke the precedent of Adams versus U.S. X. Rel. McCann, where the Supreme Court... All right, that's enough. Where are you learning these things? Does your young friend, Mr. Hampton, have a background in law? Your Honor, the other defendants would like to join in Mr. Seal's motion. Are you now speaking on behalf of Mr. Seal? No, Your Honor, I'm speaking on behalf of the other defendants. You're standing right next to him. Why don't you just represent him? Because I'm not his lawyer, sir. And if I understand Mr. Seal this last month and a half, and I believe I have, he is not represented by counsel. Overruled. I am being denied Mr. right now Seale, my constitutional will you be right for will legal you, representation. Will you be quiet? You have lawyers to speak for you. No, he doesn't. I spoke to Aaron Sorkin just after his film came out. He was at his home in Los Angeles. This interview means a lot to me personally. I'm not going to give you too much of my backstory, uh, but I do want to fangirl for just a second. Um, I was in college, in undergrad, in the early to mid-2000s, and I was a political science major. And I remember in undergrad getting together with other poli-sci majors and professors in the student center at the University of the Incarnate Word to watch the West Wing. And you were a big deal in my coming of age, you know, when it comes to how I see politics as an adult in this country. So thanks. Well, thank you. That, that really means a lot to me. I appreciate it. I mean, my poli-sci professor, Dr. Lydia Andrade, loved the West Wing so much. She had us write papers about it. You know, I, I have to tell you, this is just funny because I just got done doing an interview where I said the following. You know, it's not like everyone in the West Wing audience was a poli-sci major. And here I am. <laughs> Turns out a lot of them were. Damn it. <laughs> I know, I know. Anyways, we'll talk more about that later, but I want to talk about your latest work, your newest movie, uh, The Chicago 7. I watched it this week, um, and I was thinking throughout watching the film, at this stage of your career, you can make a movie or a TV show or a whatever about whatever you want to talk about. What made you want to tell this story? It started 14 years ago in 2006. Uh, on a Saturday morning, I was asked to come over to Steven Spielberg's house. Just to be very clear, that's uncommon, okay? It's not like I <laughs> hang out with Spielberg and he was saying, come on over, we'll watch the game together. Um, but what he said was that he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago 7. And I said, that's a great idea. That would make a great movie. Count me in, sign me up. And I walked out of his house, called my father, and asked him who the Chicago 7 were. Um, wow. I didn't have any idea what Steven was talking about. I was just saying yes to working with Steven Spielberg the way literally any writer would. So then I, I had research to do, obviously. Uh, I read about a dozen good books uh, on the subject, a number of them written by members of the Chicago 7. Uh, there's a 21,000-page trial transcript 
But the most critical part of the research was the time I got to spend with Tom Hayden, who was still mm. alive at the time. He passed away about four years ago, uh, but he was still alive at the time. And uh, he gave me uh, an insight that I would not have been able to get from those books or from the transcript. What was the biggest, most useful note he gave you? The biggest thing was that it was really easy to see the friction between Tom and Abby Hoffman. That lingered uh, in Tom, uh, that part of it was just that he felt like uh, Abby Hoffman didn't deserve to be the star of the 60s uh, that, that he became. Uh, mm. And part of it was that he felt that Abby Hoffman and, and Abby's gang, the Yippies, uh, did lasting damage to the cause that they were both into. And just him showing me that uh, uh, every day when we'd be together led me to what I think was the most important part uh, of the film. The, the mo Listen, after all the research and after all the pacing around and climbing the walls trying to figure out, uh, you know, how, what story am I telling? How should I tell it? It organized itself into three stories that I was going to tell uh, at once. Uh, one mm -hmm. was the courtroom drama. One was the uh, the evolution of the riot. How did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest devolve into such a violent clash with the police and with the National Guard? But the third mm -hmm. was the more personal story, the friction between Tom and Abby, two guys who plainly can't stand each other, uh, who are on the same side, want the same thing, but they each think the other is doing damage. Uh, to the cause. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny to hear you say that after Spielberg asked you to make a film about the Chicago 7, you had to call your dad and ask him what that was. You know, I realized when they asked me to talk with you about this film, I didn't know what it is either. And I have had conversations on my show about 68, about the DNC, and about the protest. What is it about the Chicago 7 in this case that makes so many Americans forget it ever happened? You know, that's a great question. Um, and I, this incident, I think, is not the only um, serious cultural and legal moment in our history that has been forgotten. Uh, but there are people of a certain age, um, and I hear from them every day, uh, who certainly have not forgotten uh, Chicago mm -hmm. in 1968 or the trial in 69 or 70. Um, uh, I'll, I'll hear from people who were there, uh, who still have stitches in their forehead uh, from being there. Um, I'll hear from people uh, who were 14 years old and watching it on TV, uh, and somehow that's what gave them, uh, you know, an intense sense of justice uh, and, and right and wrong. Uh, so there are people uh, who remember it well, but... Um, you and I aren't among them, and I think that uh, 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 there are, you know, tens, if not hundreds, of millions of others uh, who who just don't know that this happened. You know, so much of the film and this case. It litigates 1968, and it litigates some of the big issues uh, and emotions present in that year. And all throughout this year, people have been drawing so many comparisons between 2020 and 1968. And your film highlights some of those parallels as well. The protests, the racial unrest, part of the government calling for law and order, political anger and division everywhere. Um, how timely was it for this movie to come out 
this year when it seems like we're living in a new version of 1968? Uh, You know, when I started out back 14 years ago, uh, it first started as a, you know, hey, I get to work with Steven Spielberg. Uh, That's why I'm doing this. Uh, Then after the research turned into, this is a great story. Uh, There's a chance here to write a good screenplay that could be a good movie. Uh, uh, it's a great story. It's a, and it's a story I've never heard uh, before. Uh, it went from that to uh, starting to become shockingly, chillingly relevant. Uh, mm-hmm. When suddenly Donald Trump was at rallies, uh, you know, and a po- protester in the back would shout something and he'd be getting dragged out and Trump would start reminiscing about the good old days when we'd carry that guy out of here on a stretcher and I'd like to punch him right in the face and beat the crap out of him. Uh, when uh, protest was being demonized, whether uh, you know whether it was uh, an athlete kneeling during the national anthem, that's what was going on that made Stephen uh, uh, finally say, okay, the time to make this movie is now. We thought the film was plenty relevant last winter when we were making it. We didn't need it to get more relevant, but it did, you know, with the shootings of Breonna Taylor and Amon Arbery and and George Floyd, the protests, protesters being met by, again, tear gas and nightsticks uh, and uh, calls from the government that they're anti-American, that they're anarchists, that they're communists, uh, when in fact they're patriots. The Chicago 7 was actually eight. The eighth was Bobby Seale, uh, who was played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. And there was a moment in the movie that happens to his character that I just could not see happening today and hope and hope would not happen today. So tell me if I'm giving away too much. But to set up this scene, um, Seal, the Black Panther leader, he is at first on trial with the seven. But eventually he gets another trial after it's made clear that he wasn't like one of the guys to put it together. But before they give him a new trial and he gets to leave this one, he has to sit there for a very long time without his own lawyer present. And there's this scene where after he won't shut up and stop telling the court that he has no attorney, that the judge in this case has him bound and gagged. And I'm, I just, I mean, that is, I don't know. I know that black men are still mistreated in courts today, but I pray to God that couldn't happen today. It's yeah. the most notorious moment uh, from the trial. Uh, you know, I, I've been asked, did that really happen? Yeah, absolutely, it did. I, I, I wouldn't make up something uh, like that. Uh, could it happen today? You and I are saying no way uh, for the exact same reason. Uh, uh, we just can't mm-hmm. imagine it happening. But how many things have happened that we couldn't imagine happening? Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we also couldn't imagine uh, people who work at the White House just ignoring a congressional subpoena. So I, I'm not sure uh, whether like a rubber band, uh, you know, we got to 2020 and we just snapped back to 1968 or mm-hmm. whether not as much changed as we thought uh, had changed um, and uh, that Trump was able to just kind of take a, a, a thin Band-Aid off. You know, there's this moment where before he reenters the courtroom, literally bound and gagged the judge sends him away with the guards and what does the judge say to them 
take him away and deal with him as he should be dealt with. Wow. Was I kept thinking in that moment, I was like, was this judge really that awful or did Aaron Sorkin make him that awful in this movie? How bad was the judge? He was awful, um, uh, more awful than I made him just because I couldn't show you five and a half months of, wow. uh, of trial. But uh, he was, listen, he, he was either in the tank for the prosecution or experiencing early senility uh, or, or some combination of both. But most likely what it was, and you see this again today, uh, what it was, was he felt that he was the guardian of the America of the 50s, or at least the America uh, in his imagination <laughs> that, that the 50s were. Um, a quieter, whiter time uh, uh, without all this crazy psychedelic music and these kids in their long hair and the clothes uh, uh, protesting things, that he thought he was the last line of defense um, uh, against these guys and he was going to put them away and, uh, and teach them a lesson. It's so funny to hear you talk about, you know, defending the 50s and this version of whiteness. There are echoes of that in our conversation right now about the suburbs and who will protect them. So much of this stuff is just still happening right now. Yeah. Um, I am interested in how the scene came together in which Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is playing Bobby Seale and is himself bound and gagged in a courtroom. How hard was that scene to shoot? You were the director. Um, I'll tell you, there was one shooting day in which what we had to get was a couple of, were a couple of dozen very, very tight shots mm-hmm. of, uh, of Bobby's ankle, of Bobby's wrist, of, uh, uh, you know, of a hand shoving him uh, back in the chairs. Very, very tight shots that I would ultimately be cutting together with the stuff happening, uh, you know, with just the silence in the courtroom and everyone staring uh, at the judge. That day, that shooting day, just through a grim coincidence of scheduling, was the 50th anniversary of what happened to Fred Hampton. And so that day, it was always a very joyful set. Uh, Just a lot of laughing, a lot of high-fiving. People were into what we were doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that day, that one particular day, was much more sober uh, and somber. And I would, in the second half of the day, when we were shooting that scene where Bobby is getting shackled and, and gagged, and strapped with those leather belts uh, uh, to the chair. Uh, I started going to Yaya after every take, after every two takes, and just say, you okay? Uh, uh, How you doing? Mm. Um, Mm. uh, And he would say, yeah, I'm good. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Um, You know, and I would tell him, look, you know, this is just a very tight shot of your ankle. Uh, If you want to take your brain out of this one, uh, uh, it's Mm. fine. We we just need your... Nope, nope, nope. You know, he would keep playing the scene. And it just occurred to me, uh, listen, the guy's a professional actor. It's possible he doesn't, he wants to feel like this, that he doesn't want the director making sure he's okay. Um, uh, that, you know, he, he wants to feel these four white extras who are playing U.S. Marshals manhandling and chaining them up. Um, so that's what that day was like. But, um, you know, I can tell you that we were all suddenly very conscious of, of the fact that what was going on on Yaya's side of the camera 
uh, he was experiencing differently than I was, I guess is the best way to put it. For sure. You know, it's interesting to think about Yaya having to do that scene. Part of me is like, oh, yeah, he can handle it. He, he filmed Watchmen. He can do anything. <laughs> Uh, uh, he can, but I'll tell you that um, uh, he would, in between takes, you know, we're back in the courtroom now, uh, in between mm-hmm. takes, in between setups, when mm-hmm. everybody else would, uh, you know, group up and laughing and uh, uh, and that kind of thing, Yaya uh, would just kind of separate himself uh, a little, just by mm-hmm. a few feet, because he wasn't part of that group, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, didn't want to be yucking it up. With them, you know, he's the one who had to be put back in a jail cell every night. Uh, uh, he mm-hmm. wasn't out on bail, and I happened to notice when we were shooting his first scene, and, and we shot mm-hmm. the movie out of order, so this was well mm-hmm. into the uh, uh, into the shoot. When we were shooting his first scene, um, uh, where you know we introduce all the characters, uh, all, all of all eight of the Chicago Seven, um, uh, and. That night, uh, shooting that scene, he was in a great mood and he was the one high-fiving and and he was a leader and he's making everybody uh, laugh. And I turned to the script supervisor and I just happened to mention that. Uh, You know, look at Yaya. He's uh, he's really having fun tonight. And she pointed out the obvious. This is the only scene in the movie where he's a free man. Um, uh, In every other scene in the film... Uh, he is in handcuffs. He's tied to a chair. Yeah. He's not being yeah. listened to by the judge. He's being denied his constitutional rights. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Yaya obviously carried that around with him um, and gave the performance that you saw. Coming up, Aaron Sorkin predicts what it might look like if there are Donald Trump characters in TV and movies someday down the road. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, a people's history tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. Hi, this is Jordana. I'm the editor of It's Been a Minute. If you like what you're listening to, you can support the show and NPR by giving to your local station. And here's Ian. Give at donate.npr.org slash Sam. That's donate.npr.org slash Sam. Okay, back to the show. So there's this scene in Aaron Sorkin's movie, The Chicago 7. It takes place months into the actual trial of The Chicago 7 itself. After a long, rough day in the courtroom, the defendants, Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden, they're fighting over who should testify on behalf of the group. What's your problem with me, Hayden? I really wish people would stop asking you that question. Dave wouldn't want us to Answer it. One time. All right. My problem is that for the next 50 years... When people think of progressive politics, they're going to think of you. They're going to think of you and your idiot followers passing out daisies to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon. So they're not going to think of equality or justice. They're not going to think of education or poverty or progress. They're going to think of a bunch of stone-lost, disrespectful, foul-mouthed, lawless losers. And so we'll lose elections. All because of me. 
Yeah. And winning elections, that's the first thing on your wish list. Equality, justice, education, poverty and progress, they're second. If you don't win elections, it doesn't matter what's second. I want to talk about another scene in the movie that really stuck with me. It is that moment in the film when um, the Abby Hoffman character clashed with the Tom Hayden character over what's the best way to be progressive. And there was just this love. I mean, it's beautifully peak Sorkin writing. They're all in the room going back and forth and back and forth. And then one of them says, you only care about winning elections. And then the other one responds, if you don't win elections, it doesn't matter what second. And it was it was like this beautiful moment that totally captured the divide among the left in 68. But it also kind of captures the divide among the left now. Why do you think the left is still having this argument? Well... I, I understand uh, uh, the argument, and I understand both sides uh, of the argument. Mm-hmm. Abby's side of the argument, um, which today would be the, I guess, the Bernie Sanders side of the argument. Incremental progress, uh, uh, slow progress doesn't do the trick, uh, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, why should uh, people who are experiencing racial injustice uh, uh, why should they be satisfied uh, with slow and steady wins the race? The other side of the argument is you will lose the race if you do anything but slow and steady. So people like me uh, right now uh, are saying, guys, can we have the argument about the Green New Deal? Can we have the argument about defunding the police on November 4th, please? What in your mind, is the biggest similarity between this year and 1968? The deep polarization, the deep division, uh, where uh, one side are the real Americans and the other side are a threat to uh, of the American way of life. Uh, a leader who is creating and exploiting that division uh, and one side is, is un-American. Um, mm-hmm. But it's the it's the tear gas it's the nightsticks it's uh peaceful protesters being met with violence i saw um a photograph from 1969 when the trial was starting uh mm-hmm. a photograph of the outside of the courthouse uh and uh, all the signs that people were holding up and there were plenty of uh i guess you'd call them counter protesters there people who, who mm-hmm. were not supporters of the chicago seven mm-hmm. uh and uh, I saw th- three of the signs that I saw uh, said, uh, America, love it or leave it. What, what about white civil rights? And lock them up. And I told our prop master, uh, you know, who was going to have to be making dozens of signs uh, uh, for that scene. Those are the three I need the camera to find. You know, I've also been thinking after watching this movie, about what some of the biggest differences might be uh, between 1968 and now, especially when it comes to the topic of the film. And one thing I realized that today, the Chicago 7 would have been women. You know, when I think about who leads the protest now, the waves of protest happening across the country, it's led by women. The Black Lives Matter movement was founded by women. It is still in large part led by women. 
the energy of the resistance is really led by the energy of the women's march. You know, if there were a Chicago 7 today, it would be women. How do you think that would make a whole trial different? Well, first of all, you, there's no question about what you're saying. Um, uh, that when this is all over and we can get back to normal, we must erect a statue of uh, just a woman, <laughs> okay, uh, leading a million other people uh, in, yeah. in protest because it started the day after Trump's inaugura- inauguration, right, uh, yeah. uh, with the yeah. Women's March. And uh, uh, the silver medal goes to young people, um, uh, right? <laughs> like those uh, uh, kids from Marjorie Stone Douglas High School. So uh, how would the trial be different? That's an interesting question. You know, uh, look, Jerry and Abby, at least, felt that it was their job during the trial, during the almost six months of their trial, to every day make it clear to the judge and to the world that they don't respect this trial. You know, and they would, so they would wear judges' robes and the policemen's uniforms and they, they would do goofy things. It, it was more of a circus than what I present uh, uh, in the movie. Uh, uh, even more of a circus than, uh, than what I present in the movie. So if it wow. were, uh, if the Chicago 7 uh, was eight women, um, I, I, I don't know. I think it depends on who those eight women uh, were. Uh, but you're right. They, they would be women. Do you still read your reviews? Uh, you know, um, I get sent. Uh, now, the, the Chicago 7 opened in theaters. Theaters? What are those? Yeah, I know, uh, right? Um, uh, it, there were theaters, there were screens in, I think, 22 cities uh, in America uh, uh, that it was playing on. Um, I, I don't imagine there was anyone in the theater when the movie was was playing, but it started uh, playing on Netflix. Um, and every day uh, I get from the publicity department uh, at Netflix uh, about 30 or 40 reviews a day. I don't want critics to think that I'm shrugging them off uh, at all, uh, but um, you would just overdose on yourself if, if you read all the reviews. I read a bunch of the reviews for your movie, and I noticed this thing, this very this strange thing that a lot of people, critics who know your work do, they do this like compliment but not a compliment of you and your style. You've come to be known for your very distinct style and your distinct writing and the walk and talks that you have in your shows and your movies. And it has become familiar to you and your work and people love it. But like a few other critics would write about that and say, yeah, it was fun and peppy and fast, but you know Sorkin. And there was one review where the reviewer said, and this doesn't mean to disparage Mr. Sorkin, but he's never been a realist. He's too earnest and, and his dialogue is too idealistic. And so these, all of these critics have this way of saying, Aaron Sorkin and doing this thing that he's very good at, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> After years of hearing that kind of, I don't even know what to call it. It's kind of a compliment and a slap in the face at the same time. Like, do you think about that? I mean, the fact that people know how you write so well that they can talk about it that way. Listen, uh, honest to God, the thing that I think about the most is that I get to earn a living doing exactly what I love doing. And uh, what you're talking about, those are pretty glamorous problems, you know. 
uh, that <laughs> critics talk about me in a certain way. Um, when I was writing my first play, A Few Good Men, on cocktail napkins uh, at the bar I was working at, um, uh, and you had told me that my problem was going to be the way critics talked about uh, my writing, um, mm. I, I would have hugged you and said, really, there's going to be a day when I'm reviewed by somebody? So, mm. uh, uh, you know, that's... I, I know exactly what you're talking about, uh, but... Um, it's been going on for a while, so I'm used to it. Yeah. I do want to dig into one of the themes in your work that critics consistently notice, and that is your optimism slash idealism. You, you, and I like it. You know, it's part of why the West Wing worked for so many people. It helped you still believe in politics, even if you saw that it could be messy. You've never apologized for the idealism and the optimism in your work. Has 2020, or the last few years made you reconsider the idealism because it's been such a dark time for so many people it has not uh made me reconsider it okay tell me why i I do like writing idealistically and optimistically as an audience member uh i'm i i i like cynical things gritty things really yeah i'm fine with things that that don't have a happy ending Uh, uh uh but as a writer uh I just, you know, I like writing the kinds of movies that made me want to write movies. And those were usually movies that put a lump in my throat, gave me the goosebump experience, uh, you know, just made me feel two inches taller uh, after I'd watched it. And, uh, and I like doing that. Uh, there have been a couple of exceptions along the way, uh, and there'll probably be a couple of exceptions in my future. Uh, but um, I... You know, I like it when uh, the orchestra comes in. You know, when I think of the West Wing or even the social network, which is just one of my all times, there are these people in positions of power who are able to maneuver the levers of power based on how good or bad they are. You know, so a President Bartlett, because he's a good man, can steer politics toward his will, which is greater good. And he's able to do that. And in the social network, you know, Zuckerberg's character is a guy who doesn't really know what he wants or might have some bad intentions. And he steers his power towards something a little bit bad. I think that like what has been made really clear for me watching the way our politics and our social life has just seemed to devolve. It is that there are some things that can affect us negatively outside of leaders' good or bad intent. Like even when I think about Facebook, you know, the social network helped me conceptualize and think about my large notions of what social media means and what big tech really is. And for a long time, I think I thought it was like these really powerful 12-year-old boys and what they want. But the last year or two or three has taught me that it's bigger than that. It's about Russian interference. It is about violence and criminality across the world that's using Facebook. And it's bigger than the guy or the girl in charge who means well or means badly. And I wonder, how do we make both things fit? Because I love the way that you write and the ideas that you bring around the integrity of leadership and how powerful it can be. But the last few years have taught me that it's bigger than that. It sounds like you and I have taken uh, very similar journeys 
since the time that the social network came out. When I wrote the social network, you, you, your description was was pretty good. Um, I it was about uh, like the most antisocial guy uh, you can imagine. Uh, creating a world where he was the mayor of social life. Uh, even that ended with uh, the character having changed just because of exp- his experience in those two deposition uh, hearings. Um, and he has changed a little bit, and the movie ends with him alone trying to reconnect with Rooney Mara. Um, uh, this woman he wasn't very nice to and just we never know if he does or not but he's going to sit there all night click and refresh it's such a powerful scene oh my goodness if you make part two of the movie today that's not how it ends but I'll bet that there is still a way to find the uplifting ending to that movie really? tell me (laughs) It's, it's it's a movie, so there has to be a way. Uh, uh, there has to be a way. Uh, somebody taking their laptop and throwing it into the ocean or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you at all thought about how you might want to write about politics, if you want to write about politics, after we've all fully absorbed the Trump era? When it comes time to reflect on that through cinema and television, do you want to be a part of that work? Here's what the hardest thing about that uh, is going to be. And uh, I, I've just in the last week passed on two different things that would involve the character of Donald Trump. Really? Yeah. Um, here's what the difficult thing about that is going to be. And, and believe me, screenwriters, playwrights, television writers, we're going to be writing a lot uh, about these last four years. But I predict that you will... The Comey rule notwithstanding, uh, that you will seldom see Donald Trump as anything but an off-screen character. You know, you'll see mm. him on TV uh, in news clips. And the reason is that he's implausible. Uh, mm. uh, ha- having him in a, char- uh, in a story with real people is very difficult because he's implausible. It's very hard to not make him like Alec Baldwin uh, on SNL. Mm. Uh, because, as I say, he is implausible. Also, um, you can write about heroes and villains or anti-heroes like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, but there's no such thing as an interesting character who doesn't have a conscience. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you take Richard III's conscience away from him, uh, we're not interested in that play. Well, I tell you what, this has uh, been a dream come true, Mr. Sorkin. I got to tell you, the young undergrad poli sci nerd in me is just geeking out right now. And I'm seriously, once we're done with this chat, I'm going to call up my old professor and tell her who I talked to today because this is really great. <laughs> uh, that means the world to me. And when you're talking to your old professor, uh, thank him or her uh, for uh, w- what a great job they did on you. Well, Aaron Sorkin, thank you for all that you do. I'm happy that we had this time together. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Thanks again to director and screenwriter Aaron Sorkin for that chat. His film, The Trial of Chicago 7, it is streaming right now on Netflix. Also, thanks to Terry Gross and the entire team over at Fresh Air for originally producing this interview and for helping make it all happen. All right, listeners, I am wishing you health and happiness as we head into this brave new year. I'm going to make a prediction. 
it probably won't be worse than 2020. All right, till next time, uh, we're back in your feed soon. Stay safe. Be good to yourselves. Happy New Year. We'll talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts.